This performance is a co-production of loudlit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 30 When they got aboard, the king went for me and shook me by the collar and says, Trying to give us a slip, was ye, you pup? Tired of our company, eh? I says, No, your majesty, we weren't. Please don't, your majesty. Quick then and tell us what was your idea, or I'll shake the insides out of you. Honest, I'll tell you everything just as it happened, your majesty. The man that had a hold of me was very good to me, and kept saying he had a boy about as big as me that died last year, and he was sorry to see a boy in such a dangerous fix. And when they was all took by surprise by finding the gold and made a rush for the coffin, he lets go of me and whispers, Heal it now or they'll hang you sure, and I lit out. It didn't seem no good for me to stay. I couldn't do nothing, and I didn't want to be hung if I could get away. So I never stopped running till I found the canoe. And when I got here, I told Jim to hurry or they'd catch me and hang me yet, and said I was afeard you and the Duke wasn't alive now. And I was awful sorry, and so was Jim, and was awful glad when we see you coming. You may ask Jim if I didn't. Jim said it was so, and the king told him to shut up and says, Oh, yes, it's mighty likely and shook me up again, and said he reckoned he'd drown me. But the duke says, Let go of the boy, you old idiot. Would you have done any different? Did you inquire around for him when you got loose? I don't remember it. So the king let go of me and begun to cuss that town and everybody in it. But the duke says, You better a blame sight give yourself a good cussing, for you're the one that's entitled to it most. You ain't done a thing from the start that had any sense in it except coming out so cool and cheeky with that imaginary blue arrow mark. That was bright. It was right down bully. And it was the thing that saved us. For if it hadn't been for that, they'd have jailed us till them Englishmen's baggage come, and then the penitentiary, you bet. But that trick took them to the graveyard, and the gold done us a still bigger kindness. For if the excited fools hadn't let go all holts and made that rush to get a look, we'd have slept in our cravats tonight. Cravats warranted to wear, too longer than we'd need them. They was still a minute thinking, then the king says kind of absent-minded like, and we reckon the niggers stole it. That made me squirm. Yes, says the duke, kind of slow and deliberate and sarcastic. We did. After about a half a minute, the king draws out, leastways I did. The duke says the same way, on the contrary, I did. The king kind of ruffles up and says, Look at here, Bilgewater. What are you referring to? The duke says pretty brisk. When it comes to that, maybe you'll let me ask. What was you referring to? Shucks, says the king, very sarcastic. But I don't know. Maybe you was asleep and didn't know what you was about. The duke bristles up now and says, Oh, let up on this cussed nonsense. Do you take me for a blamed fool? Don't you reckon I know who hid that money in that coffin? Yes, sir, I know you do know, because you done it yourself. It's a lie, and the duke went for him. The king sings out, Take your hands off, let go of my throat, I'll take it all back. The duke says, Well, you just own up first that you did hide that money there, intending to give me the slip one of these days and come back and dig it up and have it all to yourself. Wait just a minute, duke, answer me this one question, honest and fair. If you didn't put the money there, say it, and I'll believe you, and take back everything I said. 
You old scoundrel, I didn't, and you know I didn't. There, now. Well, then, I believe you. But answer me only just this one more. Now, don't get mad. Didn't you have it in your mind to hook the money and hide it? The Duke never said nothing for a little bit, and he says, Well, I don't care if I did. I didn't do it anyway. But you not only had it in mind to do it, but you done it. I wished I'd never die if I'd done it, Duke, and that's honest. I won't say I weren't going to do it, because I was, but you, I mean somebody, got in ahead of me. It's a lie. You done it, and you gotta say you done it, or... The king began to gurgle and then gasps out, Nuff! I own up! I was very glad to hear him say that. It made me feel much more easier than what I was feeling before. So the duke took his hands off and says, If you ever deny it again, I'll drown you. It's well for you to sit there and blubber like a baby. It's fitting for you after the way you've acted. I never see an old ostrich for wanting to gobble everything. And I had trust in you all the time, like you was my own father. You ought to be ashamed of yourself to stand by and hear it saddled on to a lot of poor niggers, and you never say a word for em. It makes me feel ridiculous to think I was soft enough to believe that rubbish. Cuss you. I can see now why you were so anxious to make up the deficit. You wanted to get what money I'd got out of the nonsuch in one thing or another and scoop it all. The king says, timid and still a-snuffling. Why, Duke, it was you that said make up the deficit. It weren't me. Dry up. I don't want to hear no more out of you, says the Duke. And now you see what you got by it. They've got all their own money back, and all on, but a shekel or two besides. Go long to bed, and don't you deficit me no more deficits long as you live. So the king sneaked into the wigwam and took to his bottle for comfort, and before long the duke tackled his bottle, and so in about a half an hour they was as thick as thieves again, and the tighter they got, the lovinger they got, and went off a-snoring in each other's arms. They both got powerful mellow, but I noticed the king... Didn't get mellow enough to forget to remember to not deny about hiding the money bag again. That made me feel easy and satisfied. Of course, when they got to snoring, we had a long gabble, and I told Jim everything. Chapter 31 We dasn't stop again at any town for days and days, kept right along down the river. We was down south in the warm weather now, and a mighty long ways from home. We begun to come to trees with Spanish moss on them, hanging down from the limbs like long gray beards. It was the first I ever see it growing, and it made the woods look solemn and dismal. So now the frauds reckoned they was out of danger, and they begun to work the villages again. First they done a lecture on temperance, but they didn't make enough for them both to get drunk on. Then, in another village, they started a dancing school, but they didn't know no more how to dance than a kangaroo does. So the first prance they made, the general public jumped in and pranced them out of town. Another time, they tried to go at yellocution. But they didn't yellocute long till the audience got up and give them a solid good cussing and made them skip out. They tackled missionaring and mesmerizing and doctoring and telling fortunes and little of everything. But they couldn't seem to have no luck. So at last, they got just about dead broke and laid around the raft as she floated along, thinking and thinking and never saying nothing by the half day at a time and dreadful blue and desperate. And at last they took a change and begun to lay their heads together in the wigwam and talk low and confidential two or three hours at a time. Jim and me got uneasy. We didn't like the look of it. We judged they was studying up some kind of worse deviltry than ever. We turned it over and over, and at last we made up our minds 
they was going to break into somebody's house or store or was going into the counterfeit money business or something. So then we was pretty scared and made up an agreement that we wouldn't have nothing in the world to do with such actions, and if we ever got the least show, we would give them the cold shake and clear out and leave them behind. Well, early one morning we hid the raft in a good, safe place about two miles below a little bit of a shabby village named Pikesville, and the king, he went ashore and told us all to stay hid whilst he went up to town and smelt around to see if anybody had got any wind of the royal nonsuch there yet. House to rob you mean, says I to myself, and when you get through robbing it, you'll come back here and wonder what has become of me and Jim in the raft, and you'll have to take it out and wondering. And he said if he weren't back by midday, the duke and me would know it was all right, and we was to come along. So we stayed where we was. The duke, he fretted and sweated around, and was in a mighty sour way. He scolded us for everything, and we couldn't seem to do nothing right. He found fault with every little thing. Something was a brewin' sure. I was good and glad when midday come and no king. We could have a change anyway, and maybe the chance for the chance on top of it. So me and the duke went up to the village and hunted around there for the king, and by and by we found him in the back room of a little low doggery, very tight, and a lot of loafers bullyragging him for sport, and he a-cussin' and a-threatening with all his might, and so tight he couldn't walk, and couldn't do nothing to them. The duke he begun to abuse him for an old fool, and the king begun to sass back, and the minute they was fairly at it, I lit out and shook the reefs out of my hind legs, and spun down the river road like a deer, for I see our chance, and I made up my mind that it would be a long day before they ever see me and Jim again. I got down there all out of breath, but loaded up with joy, and sung out, Set her loose, Jim! We're all right now! But there weren't no answer, and nobody come out of the wigwam. Jim was gone. I set up a shout, and then another, and then another, and run this way and that in the woods, whooping and screeching, but it weren't no use. Old Jim was gone. Then I sat down and cried. I couldn't help it. But I couldn't set still long. Pretty soon I went out on the road trying to think what I better do, and I run across a boy walking and asked him if he'd seen a strange nigger dressed so-and-so, and he says, Yes. Whereabouts, says I. Down to Silas Phelps' place, two mile below here. He's a runaway nigger, and they've got him. Was you looking for him? You bet I ain't. I run across him in the woods about an hour or two ago, and he said if I hollered he'd cut my livers out, and told me to lay down and stay where I was, and I'd done it. Been there ever since, afeard to come out. Well, he says, you needn't be afeard no more, because they've got him. He run off from down south, Summers. It's a good job they got him. Well, I reckon. There's two hundred dollars reward on him. It's like picking up money out in the road. Yes, it is, and I could have had it if I'd been big enough. I see him first. Who nailed him? It was an old fellow, a stranger, and he sold out his chance in him for forty dollars because he got to go up the river and can't wait. Think of that now. You bet I'd wait if it was seven year. Well, that's me every time, says I, but maybe his chance ain't worth no more than that if he'll sell it so cheap. Maybe there's something ain't straight about it. But it is, though, straight as a string. I see the handbill myself. It tells all about him to a dot. Paints him like a picture and tells the plantation he's from, below New Orleans. No siree, Bob. They ain't no trouble about that speculation, you bet ya. Say, give me a char of tobacco, won't you? I didn't have none, so he left. I went to the raft and sat down in the wigwam to think, but I couldn't come to nothing. 
I thought till I wore my head sore, but I couldn't see no way out of the trouble. After all this long journey, and after all we'd done for them scoundrels, here it was all come to nothing, everything all busted up and ruined, because they could have the heart to serve Jim such a trick as that, and make him a slave again all his life, and amongst strangers too, for forty dirty dollars. Once I said to myself, it would be a thousand times better for Jim to be a slave at home where his family was, as long as he'd got to be a slave, and so I'd better write a letter to Tom Sawyer and tell him to tell Miss Watson where he was. But I soon give up that notion for two things. She'd be mad and disgusted at his rascality and ungratefulness for leaving her, and so she'd sell him straight down the river again, and if she didn't, everybody naturally despises an ungrateful nigger, and they'd make Jim feel it all the time, and so he'd feel ornery and disgraced. And then think of me. It would get around that Huck Finn helped a nigger to get his freedom. And if I was ever to see anybody from that town again, I'd be ready to get down and lick his boots for shame. That's just the way. A person does a low-down thing, and then he don't want to take no consequences of it. Thinks as long as he can hide, it ain't no disgrace. Well, that was my fix exactly. The more I studied about this, the more my conscience went to grinding me, and the more wicked and low-down and ornery I got to feeling. And at last, when it hit me all of a sudden that here was the plain hand of Providence slapping me in the face and letting me know my wickedness was being watched all the time from up there in heaven, whilst I was stealing a poor old woman's nigger that had never done me no harm, and now was showing me that there's one that's always on the lookout and ain't a-going to allow no such miserable doings to go on just so fur and no further. I most dropped in my tracks I was so scared. Well, I tried the best I could to kinder soften it up somehow for myself by saying I was brung up wicked, and so I weren't so much to blame. But something inside me kept saying, There was the Sunday school. You could have gone to it. And if you'd a done it, they'd a learnt you there that people that acts as I'd been acting about that nigger goes to everlasting fire. It made me shiver, and I about made up my mind to pray and see if I couldn't try to quit being the kind of a boy I was and be better. So I kneeled down, but the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they? It weren't no use to try and hide it from him, nor from me neither. I knowed very well why they wouldn't come. It was because my heart weren't right. It was because I weren't square. It was because I was playing double. I was letting on to give up sin, but away inside of me I was holding on to the biggest one of all. I was trying to make my mouth say I would do the right thing and the clean thing and go and write to that nigger's owner and tell where he was, but deep down in me I knowed it was a lie, and he knowed it. You can't pray a lie. I found that out. So I was full of trouble, full as I could be and didn't know what to do. At last I had an idea, and I says, I'll go and write the letter, and then see if I can pray. Why, it was astonishing, the way I felt as light as a feather right straight off, and my trouble's all gone. So I got a piece of paper and a pencil, all glad and excited, and sat down and wrote, Miss Watson, your runaway nigger Jim is down here two mile below Pikesville, and Mr. Phelps has got him, and he will give him up for the reward if you send. Huck Finn. I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I had ever felt so in my life, and I knowed I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off, but laid the paper down and sat there thinking, thinking how good it was all this happened so, and how near I come to being lost and going to hell, and went on thinking, and got to thinking over our trip down the river, 
and I see Jim before me all the time, in the day and in the night times, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms, and we are floating along, talking and singing and laughing. But somehow, I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him, but only the other kind. I'd see him standing my watch on top of his'n, instead of calling me so I could go on sleeping, and seen him how glad he was when I come back out of the fog, and when I come to him again in the swamp up there where the feud was, in such like times, and would always call me honey, and pet me and do everything he could think of for me, and how good he always was. And at last I struck the time I saved him by telling the men we had smallpox aboard, and he was so grateful, and said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world, and the only one he's got now. And then I happened to look around and see that paper. It was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a-trembling because I got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, All right, then, I'll go to hell, and tore it up. It was awful thoughts and awful words, but they was said, and I let them stay said, and never thought no more about reforming. I shoved the whole thing out of my head, and said I would take up wickedness again, which was in my line, being brung up to it, and the other weren't. And for a starter, I would go to work and steal Jim out of slavery again, and if I could think up anything worse, I would do that too, because as long as I was in, and in for good, I might as well go the whole hog. Then I set to thinking over how to get at it, and turned over some considerable many ways in my mind, and at last fixed up a plan that suited me. So then I took the bearings of a woody island that was down the river a piece, and as soon as it was fairly dark, I crept out with my raft and went for it, and hid it there, and then turned in. I slept the night through, and got up before it was light, and had my breakfast, and put on my store clothes, and tied up some others, and one thing or another in a bundle, and took the canoe and cleared for shore. I landed below where I judged was Phelps's place, and hid my bundle in the woods, and then filled up the canoe with water, and loaded rocks into her, and sunk her where I could find her again when I wanted her, about a quarter of a mile below a little steam sawmill that was on the bank. Then I struck up the road, and when I pass the mill I see a sign on it, Phelps Sawmill, and when I come to the farmhouses, two or three hundred yards further along, I kept my eyes peeled, but didn't see nobody around, though it was good daylight now. But I didn't mind, because I didn't want to see nobody just yet. I only wanted to get the lay of the land. According to my plan, I was going to turn up there from the village, not from below. So I just took a look and shoved along straight for town. Well, the first man I see when I got there was the Duke. He was sticking up a bill for the Royal Nunsuch, three-night performance, like that other time. They had the cheek, them frauds. I was right on him before I could shirk. He looked astonished and said, Hello, where'd you come from? Then he says, kind of glad and eager, Where's the raft? Got her in a good place? I says, Why, that's just what I was going to ask your grace. Then he didn't look so joyful and says, What was your idea for asking me? He says, Well, I says, When I see the king and that dogger yesterday, I says to myself, We can't get him home for hours till he's soberer. So I went a-loafing around town to put in the time and wait. A man up and offered me ten cents to help him pull his skiff over the river and back to fetch his sheep, and so I went along. But when we was dragging him to the boat, 
and the man left me a hold of the rope and went behind him to shove him along. He was too strong for me and jerked loose and run, and we after him. We didn't have no dog, and so we had to chase him all over the country till we tired him out. We never got him till dark. Then we fetched him over, and I started down for the raft. When I got there and see it was gone, I says to myself, They've got into trouble and had to leave, and they've took my nigger, which is the only nigger I've got in the world, and now I'm in a strange country and ain't got no property no more, nor nothing, and no way to make my living. So I sat down and cried. I slept in the woods all night. But what did become of the raft then? And Jim, poor Jim. Blamed if I know, that is, what's become of the raft. That old fool had made a trade and got forty dollars. And when we found him in the doggery, the loafers had matched half dollars with him and got every cent but what he'd spent for whiskey. And when I got him home late last night and found the raft gone, we said, that little rascal has stole our raft and shook us and run off down the river. I wouldn't shake my nigger, would I? The only nigger I had in the world and the only property? We never thought of that. Fact is, I reckon we'd come to consider him our nigger. Yes, we did consider him so. Goodness knows we had trouble enough for him. So when we see the raft was gone and we flat broke, there weren't anything for it but to try the royal nonsuch another shake. And I've pegged along ever since, dry as a powder horn. Where's that ten cents? Give it here. I had considerable money, so I give him ten cents, but begged him to spend it for something to eat and give me some because it was all the money I had and I hadn't had nothing to eat since yesterday. He never said nothing. The next minute he whirls on me and says, Do you reckon that nigger would blow on us? We'd skin him if he done that. How can he blow? Haney run off? No. That old fool sold him and never divided with me, and the money's gone. Sold him? I says and begun to cry. Why, he was my nigger, and that was my money. Where is he? I want my nigger. Well, you can't get your nigger, that's all. So dry up your blubberin'. Looky here. Do you think you'd venture to blow on us? Blamed if I think I'd trust you. Why, if you was to blow on us. He stopped. But I never see the Duke look so ugly out of his eyes before. I went on a whimpering and says, I don't want to blow on nobody, and I ain't got no time to blow no how. I got to turn out and find my nigger. He looked kind of bothered and stood there with his bills fluttering on his arm, thinking and wrinkling up his forehead. At last he says, I'll tell you something. We gotta be here three days. If you promise you won't blow and won't let the nigger blow, I'll tell you where to find him. So I promised, and he says, A farmer by the name of Silas F And then he stopped. You see, he started to tell me the truth, but when he stopped that way and begun to study and think again, I reckoned he was changing his mind, and so he was. He wouldn't trust me. He wanted to make sure of having me out of the way the whole three days. So pretty soon he says, The man that bought him is named Abram Foster, Abram G. Foster, and he lives forty mile back here in the country on the road to Lafayette. All right, I says, I can walk it in three days, and I'll start this very afternoon. No, you won't. You'll start now. And don't you lose any time about it neither, nor do any gabbling by the way. Just keep a tight tongue in your head and move right along and then you won't get into trouble with us, do you hear? That was the order I wanted, and that was the one I played for. I wanted to be left free to work my plans. So clear out, he says, and you can tell Mr. Foster whatever you want to. Maybe you can get him to believe that Jim is your nigger. Some idiots don't require documents, 
Leastways, I've heard there's such down south here. And when you tell him the handbill and the rewards, Bogus, maybe he'll believe you when you explain to him what the idea was for getting him out. Go long now, and tell him anything you want. But mind, you don't work your jaw any between here and there. So I left, and struck for the back country. I didn't look around, but I kind of felt like he was watching me. But I knowed I could tire him out at that. I went straight out in the country as much as a mile before I stopped. Then I doubled back through the woods towards Phelps's. I reckon I better start in on my plan straight off without fooling around, because I wanted to stop Jim's mouth till these fellows could get away. I didn't want no trouble with their kind. I'd seen all I wanted to of them, and wanted to get entirely shut of them. Chapter 32 When I got there, it was all still and Sunday-like, and hot and sunshiny. The hands was gone to the fields, and there was them kind of faint dronings of bugs and flies in the air that makes it seem so lonesome and like everybody's dead and gone. And if a breeze fans along and quivers the leaves, it makes you feel mournful, because you feel like it's spirits whispering, spirits that's been dead ever so many years, and you always think they're talking about you. As a general thing, it makes a body wish he was dead too, and done with it all. Phelps's was one of these little one-horse cotton plantations, and they all look alike. A rail fence round a two-acre yard, a stile made out of logs sawed off and upended in steps, like barrels of a different length, to climb over the fence with, or for the women to stand on when they're going to jump onto a horse. Some sickly grass patches in the big yard, but mostly it was bare and smooth, like an old hat with the nap rubbed off. Big double log house for the white folks, hewed logs, with the chinks stopped up with mud or mortar, and these mud stripes been whitewashed some time or another. Round log kitchen, with the big, broad, open but roofed passage joining it to the house. Log smokehouse back of the kitchen. Three little log nigger cabins in a row t'other side the smokehouse. One little hut all by itself away down against the back fence. And some outbuildings down a piece the other side. Ash hopper and big kettle to bile soap in by the little hut. Bench by the kitchen door, with bucket of water and a gourd. Hound asleep there in the sun. More hounds asleep round about. About three shade trees away off in a corner, some currant bushes and gooseberry bushes in one place by the fence, outside of the fence a garden and a watermelon patch. Then the cotton fields begins, and after the fields the woods. I went around and clumb over the back stile by the ash hopper and started for the kitchen. When I got a little ways, I heard the dim hum of a spinning wheel wailing along up and sinking along down again, and then I knowed for certain I wished I was dead for that is the lonesomest sound in the whole world. I went right along, not fixing up any particular plan, but just trusting to Providence to put the right words in my mouth when the time come, for I'd noticed that Providence always did put the right words in my mouth if I left it alone. When I got halfway, first one hound and then another got up and went for me, and of course I stopped and faced them and kept still. And such another powwow as they made... In another quarter of a minute, I was a kind of a hub of a wheel, as you may say, spokes made out of dogs, circle of fifteen of them packed together around me, with their necks and noses stretched up towards me, a-barking and howling, and more a-coming. You could see them sailing over fences and around corners from everywheres. A nigger woman come tearing out of the kitchen with a rolling pin in her hand, singing out, "'Begone, you Taj, you spot! Begone, sir!' And she fetched first one, and then another of them a clip, and sent them howling, and then the rest followed, and the next second half of them come back, 
wagging their tails around me and making friends with me. There ain't no harm in a hound know-how. And behind the woman comes a little nigger girl and two little nigger boys without anything on but toe linen shirts, and they hung onto their mother's gown and peeped out from behind her at me, bashful, the way they always do. And here comes the white woman running from the house, about forty-five or fifty-year-old, bareheaded, and her spinning stick in her hand. And behind her comes her little white children, acting the same way the little niggers was doing. She was smiling all over so she could hardly stand, and says, It's you, at last, ain't it? I out with a yes'm before I thought. She grabbed me and hugged me tight, and then gripped me by both hands and shook and shook, and the tears come in her eyes, and run down over, and she couldn't seem to hug and shake enough and kept saying, You don't look as much like your mother as I reckon you would, but law's sake, I don't care for that. I'm so glad to see you. Dear, dear, it does seem like I could eat you up. Children, it's your cousin Tom. Tell him howdy. But they ducked their heads and put their fingers in their mouths and hid behind her. So she run on, Lies, hurry up and get him a hot breakfast right away. Or did you get your breakfast on the boat? I said I had got it on the boat. So then she started for the house, leading me by the hand and the children tagging after. When we got there, she set me down in a split-bottom chair and set herself down on a little low stool in front of me, holding both of my hands and says, Now I can have a good look at you. And laws of me, I've been hungry for it a many and a many a time all these long years, and it's come at last. We've been expecting you a couple days and more. What kept you? Boat get aground? Yes'm, she... Don't say yes'm, say Aunt Sally. Where'd she get aground? I didn't rightly know what to say, because I didn't know whether the boat would be coming up the river or down. But I go a good deal on instinct, and my instinct said she would be coming up from down towards Orleans. Well, that didn't help me much, though, for I didn't know the names of bars down that way. I see I'd got to invent a bar, or forget the name of the one we got aground on, or... Now I struck an idea and fetched it out. It weren't the grounding that didn't keep us back but a little. We blowed out a cylinder head. Good gracious, anybody hurt? No, em. Killed a nigger. Well, it's lucky, because sometimes people do get hurt. Two years ago last Christmas, your Uncle Silas was coming up from New Orleans on the old Lally Rook, and she blowed out a cylinder head and crippled a man, and I think he died afterwards. He was a Baptist. Your Uncle Silas knowed a family in Baton Rouge that knowed his people very well. Yes, I remember now. He did die. Mortification set in, and they had to amputate him. But it didn't save him. Yes, it was mortification. That was it. He turned blue all over and died in the hope of a glorious resurrection. They say he was a sight to look at. Your uncle's been up to town every day to fetch you. And he's gone again, not more than an hour ago. He'll be back any minute now. You must have met him on the road, didn't you? Oldish man with a... No, I didn't see nobody, Aunt Sally. The boat landed just at daylight, and I left my baggage on the wharf boat and went looking around the town and out a piece in the country to put in the time and not get here too soon, and so I come down the back way. Who'd you give the baggage to? Nobody. Why, child, it'll be stole. Well, not where I hid it, I reckon it won't, I says. How'd you get your breakfast so early on the boat? It was kinder thin ice, but I says... The captain see me standing around and told me I better have something to eat before I went ashore, so he took me in the Texas to the officer's lunch and give me all I wanted. I was getting so uneasy I couldn't listen good, 
I had my mind on the children all the time. I wanted to get them out to one side and pump them a little and find out who I was. But I couldn't get no show. Mrs. Phelps kept it up and run on so. Pretty soon she made the cold chills streak all down my back because she says, But here we're running on this way, and you hain't told me a word about sis nor any of them. Now I'll rest my works a little, and you start up yourn. Just tell me everything. Tell me all about them, all every one of them. And how they are, and what they're doing, and what they told you to tell me, and every last thing you can think of. Well, I see I was up a stump, and up it good. Providence had stood by me this fur all right, but I was hard and tight a ground now. I see it weren't a bit of use to try to go ahead. I'd got to throw up my hand. So I says to myself, here's another place where I gotta risk the truth. I opened my mouth to begin, but she grabbed me and hustled me in behind the bed and says, here he comes. Stick your head down lower. There, that'll do. You can't be seen now. Don't you let on you're here. I'll play a joke on him. And children, don't you say a word. I see I was in a fix now, but it weren't no use to worry. There weren't nothing to do but just hold still and try and be ready to stand from under when the lightning struck. I had just one little glimpse of the old gentleman when he come in. Then the bed hit him. Miss Phelps, she jumps for him and says, Has he come? No, says her husband. Goodness gracious, she says. What in the world can have become of him? I can't imagine, says the old gentleman. And I must say it makes me dreadful uneasy. Uneasy, she says. I'm ready to go distracted. He must have come, and you've missed him along the road. I know it's so. Something tells me so. Why, Sally, I couldn't miss him along the road. You know that. But, oh, dear, dear, what will Sis say? He must have come. You must have missed him. He... Oh, don't distress me any more. I'm already distressed. I don't know what in the world to make of it. I'm at my wit's end, and I don't mind acknowledging it. I'm right down scared. But there's no hope that he's come, for he couldn't come, and me miss him. Sally, it's terrible, just terrible. Something's happened to the boat, sure. Why, Silas, look yonder, up the road. Ain't that somebody coming? He sprung to the window at the head of the bed, and that give Miss Phelps the chance she wanted. She stooped down quick at the foot of the bed and give me a pull, and out I come, and when he turned back from the window, there she stood, a-beaming and a-smiling like a house of fire, and I standing pretty meek and sweaty alongside. The old gentleman stared and says, Why, who's that? Who do you reckon tis? I ain't no idea. Who is it? It's Tom Sawyer. By jings, I most slumped through the floor. But there weren't no time to swap knives. The old man grabbed me by the hand and shook and kept on shaking, and all the time how the woman did dance around and laugh and cry, and then how they both did fire off questions about Sid and Mary and the rest of the tribe. But if they was joyful, it weren't nothing to what I was, for it was like being born again. I was so glad to find out who I was. Well, they froze to me for two hours, and at last, when my chin was so tired it couldn't hardly go any more, I had told them more about my family, I mean the Sawyer family, than ever happened to any six Sawyer families. And I explained all about how we blowed out a cylinder head at the mouth of White River, and it took us three days to fix it, which was all right and worked first rate, because they didn't know but what it would take three days to fix it. If I'd have called it a bolt head, it would have done just as well. Now I was feeling pretty comfortable all down one side, 
and pretty uncomfortable all up the other. Being Tom Sawyer was easy and comfortable, and it stayed easy and comfortable till by and by I hear a steamboat coughing along down the river. Then I says to myself, suppose Tom Sawyer comes down on that boat, and suppose he steps in here any minute and sings out my name before I can throw him a wink to keep quiet. Well, I couldn't have it that way. It wouldn't do at all. I must go up the road and waylay him. So I told the folks I reckoned I would go up to the town and fetch down my baggage. The old gentleman was for going along with me, but I said no. I could drive the horse myself, and I'd rather he wouldn't take no trouble about me. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece.